Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Daniel Silliman, thank you so much, man. I have been wanting to talk to you for actually a while now, not originally about uh, what we're talking about today, which is your book, Reading Evangelicals, which I think is such a great idea, great concept. Once I learned about it, I was like immediately uh, reached out to interview you. But actually, because you're a part of this, like I call it like Christianity Today's Spotlight Team. <laughs> I mean, it's like a li- it. It seems to me like a little investigative journalism unit. I think there are like three or four of you. Am I in the ballpark here at all? Well, we certainly do investigative journalism. We do not have the luxury of the Boston Globe of the '90s of having right. three or four of us um, who only do investigative journalism. Yeah. 
you so we're actually all doing a lot of other things all the time while also doing some investigative work and then there's also there's a distinction so between I'm the news editor of Christianity Today, and I work really closely with Kate Shelnut, who's the senior news editor of Christianity Today, and we're print and online. And we both contributed to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is uh, Mark Cosper's baby. I'm really proud of the podcast. I think it's a good representation of CT, <laughs> but we only had a little a little role in, in that. And Mike isn't working with us on the stuff that we've done in, in print either. So. Okay. So, so Mike Cosper was not a part of, for instance, the Ravi Zacharias reporting that you did. No. Okay. So Kate and I worked really closely on those types of pieces. Yeah. Well, it's, it's you and Kate then that I wanted to interview, I don't know, a year ago or whatever. When I, when I think I heard you on the bad Christian podcast first Mm. talking about that and your guys reporting was incredible. Uh, I utilized it heavily in, uh, it was basically you and David French's reporting with the dispatch in my episode, episode or two that were focused on the Ravi scandal and all that stuff. You probably don't know this about me, but I'm, I'm an emerging spiritual harm and abuse researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, the Ravi story, the Heibel story, these are for the Driscoll sure. story are right down the pipe for mm-hmm. me. In fact, I, I some point I'm going to do an episode or a part of an episode about the Driscoll Mars Hill story where I, I go through the seven factors that my research has separated out around spiritual abuse and show how Driscoll did all seven of them, mm. <laughs> which is not as funny. That's maybe not funny to the general public. It's kind of funny to me that he's just that he was just so bad and apparently continues to be. Anyway, that Ravi Zacharias reporting was, I thought, excellent. Thanks. And I thought it, it really it pushed against some of what have traditionally been incentives of evangelical media companies, right? To to sort of not dig into the dirt of some of their biggest names and leaders. And that's probably true for any sort of big institutions with big constituents. But it, it seemed notable to me at the time, and perhaps I don't have all the the context there. Maybe it was totally normal for you guys, just, just another day at the office, the kind of thing you always work on. But my sense was that it, it was risky and that you guys really jumped to the occasion. And I, I'm curious if you have anything to say about that or just about how that was personally working on a big and, and really kind of gross and, and sad uh, and kind of disgusting story like that. Yeah. I don't know if I can speak to, you know, the history of evangelical media in holding evangelicals accountable. My sense is that it would be mixed, that there's actually a lot of really good examples of evangelical magazines, including Christianity Today, but, but others as well, doing that kind of work, you know, and, and Christianity Today has done expose-like things at least since the 70s. Um, Hmm. And I don't know that we've always been amazing. I don't know that we've always had the resources. There's definitely have been like missteps and there definitely have been times when we didn't look into things that we should have looked into. But it is a longer tradition. It's not like it just, it just started. I think the sense 
my sense of the calling of being the news editor at Crusade today and and everyone above me in the chain of command has affirmed that this is right and that this is what I should be doing is that that we have a responsibility that another outlet might not have you know so there is a right. there is a burden to be accountable <laughs> there is a burden to track these things and do what you can you know and the yeah. the, the biggest limit you know the biggest challenge in that kind of investigative work is actually resources it's not i feel like sometimes people have this idea that there's like board members or powerful people somewhere being like oh no don't investigate him but that's never that's to, that's never happened to me what does happen is you hear rumors and you don't have any sources or you have one source but you know that in the you know aggressive public space it's not going to be definitive enough evidence to convince people who need to be convinced and so you mm. you know you hold off or it's just a matter of time you know these types of things take just hours and hours and days and weekends and they're really time intensive and you do have to decide like you know is this scandal if i report on it going to speak to the couple hundred people that go to this guy's church or does it say something larger or does it speak to the evang evangelical movement in this moment? Is there something that those of us who've never heard of this guy can, can learn from? So those right. are the kinds of challenges that we face. It's really, really about access, access to sources and access to information is way more of an issue than the kind of high level, uh, should we do this or should we not? Yeah, that's interesting. So you got this idea to write a book about where you look at five of the best-selling evangelical, you know, written evangelical focused or marketed pieces of fiction, mm -hmm. novels, basically, right? They're all and novels, yeah. They're all novels. And my gosh, I, ha I have a lot of reasons that I think that that's brilliant. But first, I want to know just how you came to that idea to do that in the first place. Yeah, there were kind of two starting places. One is actually has less to do with novels than the Christian bookstore. I just always found Christian bookstores to be this kind of, I want to say magical, but I don't just mean good, right? They're, they're, yeah. this, they're this really fascinating space where you get a sense of a lot of things happening at once. If you're an ethnographer coming from outside of evangelicalism and you want to know what's going on in white evangelicalism, the Christian bookstore is a pretty good concentrated place to start is one way of saying it. Absolutely. And I, I feel like everyone who walks into the Christian bookstore has something of that experience because you end up putting your own church experience, your own faith history in context immediately right you walk into a store and you're like man there's a lot of there's a lot of charismatic -y stuff in here i don't go to a charismatic -y church i guess these right. people are i guess like christianity in tulsa is more charismatic -y than i expected or whatever right you right. put you position yourself and you have this kind of conversation with broader evangelicalism anytime you're in that space so i always kind of thought bookstores were important 
in a way that traditional approaches to evangelical history hadn't captured or hadn't made use of. So that was the first kind of niggling thing in the back of my mind. Yeah. And then um, I went to grad school in Germany. My wife started and, and helped uh, a team run a campus ministry in at the University of Tübingen. And so I went back to school and was doing grad school. And I did a presentation in a history class on Left Behind. And it was a pretty straightforward presentation. What is this book? And what is it about to the class, right? And I, what I talked about was the theology. You know, what is the rapture? Why do people think there might be a rapture? Who are the people that wrote this book? And my professor asked me a question kind of at the end and kind of just to me. <laughs> and he asked, he said, but why is it fiction, Right. If this is really all about theology or really all about politics, which are kind of the two primary right. ways that academics treat this book um, or this series of books, then why isn't it a tract? Why isn't it prose trying to persuade people? Why do it as fiction? And I just thought that was such an interesting question. What a great question. <laughs> and yeah. so it was so compelling. And, it, and I didn't it didn't seem obvious to me what the answer was, but it seemed obvious that that was worth exploring. And as I dug into it, it also gave me a way to think about best-selling evangelical novels as something more complicated than just theology conveyance mechanisms, right? Like it gave mm -hmm. me a bunch of different things to look into as I looked at each novel. So those were kind of the twin origins of the the project that became Reading Evangelicals. I love it. The two things that I had thought of that reasons that I think it's brilliant are that explicit teachings, you know, in like nonfiction books or whatever, or even in, you know, systematic theologies that a church purports to hold based on their belief statement on their website. These are often not actually believed by many people in the pews. These books are read less often. That's the other one. It's like narratives reach way more people. They catch more people's attention. Tons of Christians never read didactic type nonfiction Christian inspirational fiction, inspirational, you know, nonfiction or, or sort of, you know, prayer life stuff. They just read fiction. They watch Christian movies. They maybe listen to Christian radio. And so there's that also. But I think for me, the most interesting thing coming from the lens of, of someone studying psychology is just the kind of narratives we latch onto are probably a better proxy for how we see the world than the official stances we would tell someone if they ask us. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and I mean, you can apply this beyond fiction to, to politics. It's like with Trump, for instance, you can ask a twice Trump voting Republican why they voted for him and they'll tell you something. But I've come to believe that like that's less informative than like if you could watch them watching a Trump rally on TV and see what they react to that's more valuable. Like that would be yeah. better information as to why they actually did it. And they might not know why they actually did it. And we, we often, and this is true of everybody, including me, we often don't know the reasons that we do things 
probably far more often than we do know the reasons that we do things. And fiction, by giving us that, it does have like one layer of distance, right? It's not history. And yeah. Then we can we can interact with that more freely, I think, and more honestly, frankly, about who we really are, which may be beautiful and maybe dark. Yeah, there's definitely something to the the kinds of stories we tell shape us more than propositional beliefs. And the propositional beliefs that we do hang on to, that we do really, really believe, are often more the results or come out of those stories that we tell and the kind of frame for the stories that we tell yes. than a kind of, um, I don't know, rationalistic deductive logic or something like that. The yeah. other the other thing that, that, that you're getting at a little bit with your idea of what's good evidence, right? What counts as actually what's informative about this culture is, is one, the shift from the attempt to shift from leaders of a movement to regular people. That's really hard to do with history. Yeah. So much of the archives, you know, all of our <laughs> records are for the most part produced by in charge or the people who are in some kind of leadership. And that that's really right. challenging to get away from that. And there was interesting polling, I remember, around the 2016 election that Lifeway and or Barna conducted around just like a massive split between evangelical clergy and evangelical just congregants mm -hmm. around, for instance, Trump. I think it was something like, it's like a 30 point spread. I mean, it's a really big spread. And so you think, okay, well, this section of the bookstore shows me what those pastors are buying and reading. You know, okay, I can kind of figure that out. But like, what's everybody else reading? And these, the, the fiction is the closest thing probably to the common denominator among just the larger group of believers, not the sort of elite educated or more educated class. Yeah, and I wanted to think about book markets in a way and the the selling of the fiction, not just the novels and the stories themselves, as something like the infrastructure of evangelicalism. Because one of the run of the recurring questions is sort of how how are all of these different things that are evangelicalism held together? <laughs> And often what people do is try and find like the core idea or the core belief. And what I wanted to do was say, well, it's possible the beliefs aren't as important as that, or the beliefs don't explain as much. Maybe they're very, very important to the people that hold them, but they don't quite explain evangelicalism in all of its weird pieces. And so if we can, if we can kind of do a structural analysis and think about, think about how people are brought into this community, brought into this conversation and what keeps them there, then that might be more, more useful, which, which just becomes especially important when you see how readers actually read these novels in a bunch of different ways. Like one of the challenges with novels is that um, for, for historians or academics or even just anyone kind of taking a, 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 some critical distance, is it's easy to read the novel and then make the assumption that everyone who reads this novel basically agrees with it. And you see that all the 
time and you see that from like really smart people i mean there's a there's an old piece by joan didion who you know is a genius is an amazing writer like i'm i'm picking her not as a not as someone to knock but it's like she's she's the best she's amazing but she writes a piece for i think it's new york review of books about left behind sometime in the late 90s or early 2000s um, and it was kind of about left behind and support for the iraq war and she just okay side note one whoever forced joan didion to read left behind should really have to do some <laughs> kind of penance that's that was a crazy moment there's an accounting for some there's editor an... <laughs> <laughs> but 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 what joan didion does is just read left behinds figure out what the themes and the big ideas are and then say, oh, that's what's up with all of these people, right? Mm -hmm. 65 million people read this book. The, uh, all these people voted for Bush. All of these people support the Iraq war. Let me tell you what they're about. And, and okay, fine. But, but the readership's actually a lot more complicated than that. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who've read Left Behind and rethought whether or not they were a Christian, you know, or oh, like after said, reading it, yeah. after reading it. Yeah. Or thought, oh, I read this book and everybody in my church liked this book and I hate this book. I'm not like those people. Right. People yeah. have really complicated responses. Another kind of complicated response. People interpret the book just wrongly or creatively we would say so yeah. it's really easy to find for example with just sticking with left behind here it's really easy to find people who when they talk about left behind talk about the dangers of technology as part of why the book resonated with them because we live in a world with the internets and you know drones or whatever else yeah. The, the book is the most pro-technology apocalyptic fiction you can find. It yeah. just loves technology. But readers all the time bring their own sense of fear of, of, and, and, and technophobia right. into it and reinterpret the book. So, like, we want to read the book to understand evangelicals. Then we have to not just say, well, what's this book about? But right. how how are people engaging with it, and what are they doing with it in the world? And that turns out to be seventy two different things. That turns out to be really layered. And that was, you know, honestly, that was the big challenge actually of writing the book was how do I think about the readers? Yeah. How do I find some evidence in the world for, and then how you interpret it, right? Because here's one note of one guy who reads it this way: Is that representative of a third of the readers? Half right. of the readers, all of the readers. Right. But books are really complicated in the world, and I think that's helpful. I think that tells us more than if we read them really quickly. <laughs> yeah. And say, ah, I get it now. They're all afraid of something. So I want to do a lightning round here. Great. Uh, now, I know that you included The Shack as one of the five books. For the purposes of this lightning round, let's leave that one out because – my guess is that sort of theologically, worldview-wise, that really represents a departure from the other four, at least along the lines of the kind of stuff that I'm about to be poking fun at with this lightning round. Okay. I want to so, – I want to – let's do the lightning round. But let me just before that say my sense is that all five of the books 
are notably different from each other in what they think the core of Christianity is. Yeah. In what they think belief is about. I mean, the common the mm. common question or the common theme of each one is, if I were going to phrase it as a question, what does it mean to believe in the world today, right? They're fundamentally about belief and the experience of belief and inviting the readers to imagine belief in our current conditions in a particular way. All five of them have a different idea about what belief is like. Oh, cool. That's really interesting. Some of them are compatible. Yeah, <laughs> some yeah. Of them, some of them are compatible only if you do very weird things in your head. Yeah. And so that, that to me, that's why we then have to start talking about the structure of the book market. Because yeah. the question is, how is this idea of belief and this idea of belief held together as common answers and as part of the same conversation, even though if you were just like doing a theology class, they would be totally different options. But as people experience them in the bookstore, they have something together. So we can go more into that now. But but just before you separate out sure, the shack, yeah. I want to say like Love Comes Softly, the first romance novel is also very different. And Frank Peretti doing his demons and spiritual warfare is also very different. And, and that part of the fun and the challenge of the book is how different these things are. And yet they're all woven into a single narrative about a single culture and faith called evangelicalism. Well, that is really great. And I, at one point I want to talk about Christian film and I think I'll, I'll come back to that question. What does it mean to believe in the world today? I, I have a sense that a lot of Christian films are about that as well. And I've, I've had some people on before to, to talk about what they know about that world. And so we'll try and connect those dots, but okay. So the way I was envisioning this, I have nine things. I wrote down predictions before I even looked at the book at all. So I mm -hmm. didn't know which books you had read, mm -hmm. right? I just knew that it was like some popular Christian fiction. And I was like, okay, I want to see what I can get right just without any looking into it. So right. the way I'm thinking of the lightning round is you can just say yes, no, or it's complicated. Okay. <laughs> and uh, if, unless <laughs> you really feel like you've got to say something about it that, you know, is you, we need to hear. Okay. But there's going to be nine of them. So it could take a long time if we do that for everyone. <laughs> um, because I, what I want to primarily do today is actually just talk about these books individually, because I think that I do a lot of like common theme stuff on this show, a lot of 30,000 foot analysis. And I think mm -hmm. it'd be refreshing change to just like dive in. We probably won't really talk about all five. Let's do we it. can pick the ones we want to talk about and, and really kind of get in a bit more, more meat. Okay. So lightning round. Uh, in no particular order. Number one, my, my prediction number one from these books, Christians in America are persecuted or could be persecuted at any moment. Yes, for two of them. No, for three of them. Okay. You could also do like how many yeah. out of five? All right. So two yeah. out of five. So two out of five. Let's okay, do good. that. That works yeah, That's good. Universities and other secular elite institutions are not to be trusted. Two out of five. Okay. Two. Mainline Protestants... And Catholic churches and Catholic ways of doing things are not to be trusted. I think only one out of five mentions Catholics. Okay. Or mainline Protestants? 
I think two out of five mentioned mainline Protestants. I think Left Behind and there may be a third one. Okay. Left Behind and Left Behind to interject here. So Left yeah. Behind and This Present Darkness are the culture war books, right? So yeah, anything you imagine about or anything you know about culture war and the religious right is connected to the, is going to be represented in those yeah. two books in interesting and complicated ways. But yeah, they're those two books, the, okay. the two romance novels that I write about and the emergent church ish, the shack are, are not culture worry and they don't have those same burdens. Yeah. I have one more culture war one, and then I've got five that are not so much. So also we'll group them together. The United States is uniquely blessed by God and is the main bulwark against creeping satanic globalism. Mm, that's complicated. Okay. I know I know what you're saying. I think there's an argument that those two say that, but I don't think it's as explicit as that. Okay. Those who follow God's rules have good lives and bad things basically don't happen to those people. Uh, that's, um, <laughs> yeah, that is a great one and a complicated one. Uh, two out of five, different two. Okay. There are way more demons and angels doing stuff behind the scenes than you would ever think. Only one out of five. Only one. So there's none of that supernaturalism in the other books. No. Okay. I thought there might be. Even Left Behinds, the only real supernatural event is the rapture and then the antichrist being supernaturally powerful. Well, later on we get Armageddon and stuff, right? We get the four horsemen and all that, but they're not behind the scenes on like a day to day. That's right? right. Yes. There is an angelic right. event late in the series, um, yeah. not in the first book, which I focused on. Yeah. But you don't get like, you know, a character making a bad decision and behind them a demon is gleefully rubbing his hands. That, right. that that kind of behind the scenes thing only happens in this present darkness. In that sense, C.S. Lewis is a more spiritual warfare influenced writer than sure. Lehay and Jenkins. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, women are the weaker vessel. Mm, this is absolutely the case in Left Behind. I think it's complicated in the two romance novels. Mm -hmm. Okay. okay. That's fine. One and two complicated. I'm not doing as well here as I thought I would. It's good. Good for humanity. I mean, everything is everything. Every, what, everything you're suggesting is right about something. Sure. It's just that the five and the different genres are actually more different than you assumed. I love that. I think that that was, I think that's part of your brilliance in choosing which books to do. Two more left. Pastors and missionaries are generally the biggest heroes and or missionaries, I should say. I think the only missionary is in this present darkness, but yeah, generally um, they're presented as, as heroic. In all five? No. I'll say three. Okay. Three is pretty good. Can I tell you a weird pastor story yeah. as, as an interruption here? Uh -huh. So. One of my favorite discoveries in, in writing this, one of the details that just like I had to stop and sit down because it blew my mind. In the romance novel, the first romance novel that I talk about is uh, Jeanette Oak, Love Comes Softly. This comes out in 1979. And it's not the first evangelical novel, but it's the one that 
convinces publishers like, oh, this should be a thing. Christian romance novels should be a genre where everyone needs to have one or a series or whatever. Like, this is the next big thing. Get on it. There is a pastor character in Love Comes Softly whose name changes unexpectedly halfway through the book. The first time the pastor appears, he has a name. The second time the pastor appears, it's clear from the description that it's the same pastor, different name, just a complete break in continuity that no one caught. And my what my take on this is that like it's about a personal relationship with Jesus. It shows you how little the clergy matters, <laughs> right? It, wow. It, it, he really, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying it was intentional. I'm sure that they either thought it was a different, whoever was editing it either thought it was a different person or just didn't check or whatever. You know, we all have typos and we all try desperately to catch them. Yeah. But no, I think, I think it kind of doesn't matter, right? The, the clergy is a kind of um, anonymous person. In the first case, he's seen as not comforting. And in the second case, the message is comforting. And that is an example of how she's changed. Mm. But yeah, the the pastor is not only not a hero, continuity, he's so matters so little that um, we can barely remember his name. He's an extra. He's so an extra. Yeah, they probably yeah. should have given him a name. They probably should have just been like, pastor dude. Yeah, yeah the pastor came over. Uh, okay, last one in the lightning round. Truth is not difficult to find. And once you find it, your job is to hold on as tightly as possible. Can I give you half? I think half of one point. Yeah. Wow. I think uh, in all five, truth is difficult to find. The closest is left behind. But left behind also imagines that the truth is difficult to find, but only because you're because most people are like, committed to being wrong, right? There's a kind right. of corruption of the mind um, right. that happens. So there is a there is a kind of compelled choice in Left Behind. You have to believe the truth or embrace deception and be deceived and sort right. of eagerly accept like violations of rational processes. And then after that, your argument is totally, yes, you you cling on to it and you defend it. But in the romance novels, for example, that truth is very hard to find. Defending it is not part of the story. Well, Daniel, I feel I feel uh, humbled and chastened here a little bit. Not, not by you directly, but by – I did much more poorly on that than I thought I would do in my predictions. So I do – I think that's revealing. I think most people would kind of come into this the same way. There's been a tendency to take some of the books very seriously, mostly Left Behind, but also yeah. This Present Darkness, yeah. and see some of the other books as frivolous, not worth arguing about, not worth debating, less of a threat to broader society. Right. Yeah, not serious, not political, not theological. I will note that they're the books that are imagined for women. There's a very yeah. broad cultural assumption that the men's evangelical fiction, either written by men or with a sort of a, an intended male audience, is seen as serious and a threat. It's seen as political 
And it's imagined to kind of also like hijack people's brains or like seduce them. It's almost like the sort of old theories of pop culture of how it will just like force people to suddenly, you know, go out and believe certain things. And no one reacts to the to the women's literature that way. But it is just as successful, if not more successful. Yeah. And taking it equally seriously led me in some interesting directions. I love that. I mean, I think I tend to be more focused on Left Behind in this present darkness personally because of my own research interest in spiritual abuse. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, and we can get to this, I would imagine that Love Comes Softly and Beverly Lewis's The Shunning, the uh, Amish romance novel that kicked off that subgenre. I don't know if it kicked it off, but I assume it's like it the did. One. Yeah, yeah. And note that The Shunning is specifically an act of like the title is naming an act of ostracism, right? And right. religious, yeah. I, I think it's mostly abusive. There, uh, yeah, haven't researched the practice of shunning enough to make quite a sleep, sweeping statement, but yeah, in the book, in the book, yeah. it's about a spirit, an act of spiritual abuse. I mean, in my in my own research, it is one of the items I put on my survey. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was shunned by my pastor or church. So I would imagine that those two books might have some purity culture related sort of sex and gender assumptions. Maybe they don't, uh, you know, 79 is earlier. Oh, sure. Maybe it's, you know, and that, that can be abusive. It's, it's one of the things that actually, I think I didn't capture well enough in my own research, but obviously spiritual warfare language and end time stuff, especially for younger people in those communities with kind of more fragile psyches or anxiety stuff or scrupulosity uh, you know, the the potential for abuse is so massive. And so that's kind of why my mind goes there. But in terms of just like the average person, the average listener to this show, for instance, I think it's so cool that you're kind of coming in with this like, hey, let's take all five of these equally seriously and let's not ignore the women's books, you know, that don't matter, which I think is also <laughs> a little bit of maybe some sort of unnecessarily or or unwillingly absorbed sexism on our part to take mm-hmm. the men's books seriously from the evangelical world because they don't take the women's stuff as seriously except the people maybe making money off of it. Yeah, that's obviously a that's obviously a cultural wide phenomenon. Right. I mean, it, you know, all that that pervades all analysis of pop culture. So if you get a yeah. trend you know, analysis of a trend that involves young men, it's, is this a threat to society? Are they going to start killing us all? If you get analysis of a trend that involves young women, for example, it's only, there are only two options. It's either, how is this going to harm them? How should we be protecting young women from this stupid thing or this, or it's, it's frivolous and we should laugh at it and, and mock it for for them liking something those are sort of the only two options so i wow. see that that's just a broad yeah. culture-wide yeah misogyny the other the other issue though like talking about the the difference between the the two men's novels and the two women's novels just to think about the four there's definitely gender stuff in all of them there's definitely purity culture stuff in all of them one notable difference is that this present darkness and left behind are about how your faith shapes your relationship to your neighbors. 
right? Left behind is imagining that a kind of conflict with your neighbors is evidence of real faith in your life. And if you're not kind of clashing with your neighbors, then something, then, then like something's wrong. Um, yeah. And, and left behind, left behind goes even a layer deeper to talk about, I mean, the central premise in left behind is that God has intervened into the world through the rapture you see it clearly and obviously and everyone else is wrong. Now, what do you do? Right. That's the dilemma of the rapture as it's portrayed. What I don't, what I've never understood about that though, is I don't understand how that pencils out. That to me is like worse than a B movie assumption about how humans work. It's like, obviously since late great planet earth came out in 1971, there has been a very clear thing. People know that there are tens of millions of Americans who believe in a rapture. So how the hell does the rapture happen? And most people don't put the dots together. What I like, I've said yeah. this before. The only way I would become an evangelical again is if the rapture happened then I'd be like, oh, okay, I guess they were right all along. Like, it would be the most obvious thing ever. It, it's like, and so that's the part I've never understood. Like, just from a narrative world, unless you just say Satan or whatever, ha- like, people are basically automatons. They don't have their reason anymore. They're sort of predestined to not get that there's one very obvious explanation that millions of people predicted and that then happened. Well, okay, let me push back on this in two ways. First, from a narrative standpoint, if you take zombie movies, one recent trope of zombie movies is that in the world of the movie, people know about zombies. Mm -hmm. But for the first 50 years of zombie movies, everyone discovers zombies over and over again. And there's this there's this process of like, wait, what are these people? You know, and you even have like most zombie movies don't call them zombies. They're like, oh, they're the walking dead. They're the shufflers. They're the whatever. So it's a pretty normal narrative approach. But are you saying that this world, the world of left behind, the world left behind does not include the late great planet earth. It's like a world where that didn't. It certainly never, it, it certainly never comes up, but there are pastors who like lay out, you know, it basically exactly. But in the narrative world of the book, most people don't know about the rapture. Okay. The people who do have some close exposure to evangelical Christians yeah. and have dismissed it up till now, right? So so the main char- one of the main characters is Rayford Steele, yes. and he has exactly the experience that you just said you would have if the rapture happened, right? That I think almost every American would have in our right. world. I think yeah. that's fine. Yeah, okay. I, I, I don't know that I agree that almost every American would have it. Have you watched The Leftovers, the TV show? I did watch The Leftovers, yeah. I mean, the setup for that is the rapture happened, but not exactly as predicted. But not exactly. Thus messing us all up. It strikes me that if the rapture happened, most of us would interpret it as, well, but not exactly. So, like, it's kind of what our people said, but, like, I don't know. Like, why did the fundamentalist Baptist not get taken or whatever? And that would create – there would always be room 
to just the way reality works, there would always be room to raise more questions, to reinterpret. Yeah. Say, oh, well, it turns out I think the fundamentalist dispensationalists were right about A, B, and C, but man, D makes me have to really challenge some things. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that we should just dismiss B movie narratives as like obviously bad. They're they're invitations to play. They're invitations to a narrative space. And and Left Behind is very much, you know, an action drama. <laughs> it is very much, um, I think it has some fun and weird postmodern narrative elements to it. But it is imagining that you could suspend disbelief to imagine enough that there's a world in which not everyone knows about the rapture. Yeah. I, Maybe that's too much to disbelief. You can't go that far. <laughs> You're like, the rapture could happen. I could buy that. But the idea that people don't know about it, unbelievable. Yeah, that's kind of, that is funny. Yeah. I mean, I think that what I'm recognizing is that I just fucking hate those books. Sure. And I, I am generally a fairly objective and fair dealer on this show. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of my brand. Yeah, um, but, but you don't like them. Well, those books, the the theology in those books are responsible for the single biggest source of personal trauma in my own story, mm-hmm. which I have worked through in terms of I don't have panic attacks about it anymore. Sounds like but, we might still need to talk about it a little, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's – but, like, I do have a lot of anger. I do have a lot of anger toward evangelicalism, the, the type of – that I was raised in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me a lot of the anger is around that stuff because mm-hmm. – it, uh, so many of the claims are so sensational and so poorly evidenced and were believed by so many people unquestioningly and then had have like, in my mind, almost no benefits to them. Like there's just almost, I mean, you know, since I don't believe that humanity is primarily a collection of people who are either going to heaven or going to hell. If I did mm-hmm. believe that, I might believe it had some more utility. But since I don't believe that, I just think it has like almost nothing to offer. And then the prose and the sexism and just like the absolute insanely shitty writing of Left Behind and like all of it is just I I am I'm incensed by it and I'm laughing at it at the same time. But your pushback on, look, people can write disaster novels with whatever world building they want to build. You know, it's like you're totally right about that. And let me put in one other thing. It's not my Christianity either. So I hear your criticism and I don't want to to diminish the criticism. No, you're being you're being a cultural critic and you're doing your work really well. And I'm saying I get that. I'm not a, I can't have the distance because of my totally. own story. Yeah, totally. But let me talk about one other way. If you want to think about the novel, not as a piece of entertainment for you, but as a, here's a thing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and and how do we understand it as a historical object, which is really the, one of the fundamentally weird things about my book is that I'm doing history with novels It turns out that Left Behind was really important as a book to the early emergent movement. In some of the research, Left Behind is cited more often than any, I don't know, book by Brian Jones or Rob Bell. Like Left Behind was so popular and was so ubiquitous 
that many Christians ended up, and many even evangelical Christians ended up using it as a way to explain difference within the world, right? I'm a Christian, but I'm not a left behind. Christian. I'm not a left behind Christian, exactly. <laughs> right? Or, yeah. or like, look, I believe in heaven. And I believe in angels, but man, they don't look like this, you know, or I don't even think of the apocalypse or end times theology is that important. And these people right. have overemphasized that. Right. So part of thinking about the novel beyond just like, um, what are the authors up to and beyond how is this book used to beat me up emotionally or make my life horrible, which are all yeah. like legitimate things to ask about and to think totally. about. Totally, yeah. Another approach is just to go, what did it do in the world? And anything with a massively popular audience is going to be complicated. If only oh, 20 totally. people read it, we could totally say, oh man, look at these 20 people who believe this thing. But if 65 million people bought it, which is not the same number that read it, but that's the number that we have bought it. They're going to do a bunch of weird stuff with it. And some of it is believe it, but some of it is critique it, reinterpret it, throw it against the wall, yeah. argue with your mom about it. Those are all part of the historical reality. But if we really want to understand this fiction and we really want to understand evangelicalism in the 20th century, we need to get into all of that other stuff. 100%. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to dive into however many of these particular books that we feel like we have time to talk about to the extent we want to talk about them. Great. Let's do it. It's a really fun week this week for patrons of this podcast, because the most recent patron exclusive episode uh, is a member of our patron community. She and her husband talk with me through their story, basically of becoming uh, unequally yoked is the is the term within evangelicalism that we were kind of basing our conversation around. But really, it's a story about I don't want to say too much <laughs> about the plot, but let's just say there are some real ups and downs and some pretty serious drama. But they have sort of come out the other end of unequal faith deconstruction uh, into a really beautiful place. And it was extremely generous of them to be so open and honest about that story uh, with me for our listeners. So that's the most recent patron exclusive episode in addition to all these response episodes to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Uh, and patrons also get access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. That's patreon.com slash Dan Koch. It's $5 a month. And there is a sliding scale. If that is too much for you uh, financially at this point in your life, you can email me about that. All right, back to my conversation with Daniel. All right, Daniel. So I'll just say, I think I would lean away from picking this present darkness or left behind, if only because... Sure. Those those topics come up more on this show and like Christian romance novels never have, you know, <laughs> yeah. and then Paul Young's The Shack, I think is an interesting kind of bridge. We could definitely talk about that. I have interviewed, I interviewed Natalie Klosner, who's in the band Joseph, and she grew up with Paul, that yeah. their family was like their best friends or whatever. And so we got into that a little bit 
but certainly nothing about these, you know, the Amish romance or the Christian romance novels. So I don't know, you can pick based on what we've been talking about, like which one do you think would be a good one to get into right now? They're both pretty good. Um, yeah. Do you have a preference? I'm happy to go either way. I kind of, I think let's go chronological. Um, okay. You know, so, so Jeanette Oaks, Love Comes Softly comes out in 1979 and yeah. it basically proves, it's a proof of concept to the publishing industry that <laughs> you can make a ton of money with evangelical, Christian, whatever, oriented and marketed fiction, romance fiction. Yeah, and part of that is proving that there's a massive audience for in Christian bookstores, a massive consuming public that isn't seminary students. Right. Like so many of the early Christian bookstores are really like church supply yeah. and then the pastor's library and then the seminarian, you know, and that's kind of the, the audience. Right. But they'd already shifted a little bit to be more about families and there's a couple of reasons for this in the in the marketing. And in this first chapter where I talk about Love Comes Softly, I also give a like history of the publication of Christian books from like the 1900s <laughs> to the present yeah. and, and how it how it changes. The Christian bookstores start shifting towards family and thinking of those topics. One, because they don't divide the market. A lot of the theological stuff offends a bunch of your potential consumers. Yes. Um, so, right, you can do sort of general evangelical topics, but there's a bunch of stuff. I mean, think about, you know, ecclesiology, baptism, yeah. <laughs> the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Like, there's a oh, lot yeah. of topics that evangelicals don't agree on that if you're primarily focused on the but, but if you say how to manage your money, suddenly we don't have the same kind of denominational divides or James Dobson, how to raise good children. Well, it turns out that like Wesleyans don't fundamentally disagree with four square Christians about that in the way that they do about, you know, whether there should be bishops or, right. or something like that. It, that actually makes me think of the conversation around the Christian film industry that has mm -hmm. now really kind of come into its own. And it's like, that's actually maybe a, a rationale for the fact that anybody who watches any of them can see that like, yeah, they're Christian, like they're Christian ish. It's uh -huh. like God is good. Maybe prayer did something in, you know, a bunch of prayer made a surgery go a different way or, but it's not like people don't like preach the gospel in those movies. It's not, you know, and by which I mean sort of, you know, the evangelical, we're separated from God, Jesus's death right. and resurrection connects us with right. God. Like that's not really in those movies. And even thinking about like K-Love, the, the largest American Christian radio network, mm -hmm. it's uplifting, positive K-Love. That's like their tagline. It's not like Jesus-centered gospel K-Love, you know? And there is this, it, it, I'm, I feel like you're giving me some sort of marketing infrastructural language around why that might be the case, because yeah. these are products that anybody of any kind of Christian faith, including Mormons, including whoever you want, right, can get behind the same product. And then that's why it can compete with mainstream products, because you can get 75 million Americans that might love it. 
Yeah, and you definitely see in the later part of the book market, and I think this is very clear in the film market, you see this shift from generic Christian or simply Christian or evangelical to something like inspirational, yes, family-friendly. Like it gets less religious content as it goes on. And that is directly in relationship to the potential market absolutely yeah. who who could we possibly be be reaching and how are we going to get to them i mean films always have the problem that they have to go through theaters <laughs> or some kind of display apparatus that's really different than books so the challenges of a christian film market are a little bit distinct but so in the in the 70s there's this kind of explosion of christian bookstores some of this has to do with the suburbs. Some of this has to do with the credit situation. It's possible for small businesses to get loans to start bookstores. Yeah. And then in that, in that process, the stores are shifting from sort of church supply and sort of pastor oriented. And in an older generation, they would have been denomination oriented, like Methodist books selling to Methodists and Mennonite books selling to Mennonites. Yep. So the discovery of Christian fiction, the discovery specifically of a Christian romance novel, suddenly makes the booksellers realize or it confirms for them that their primary book buyer is a middle-aged, middle-class white woman who lives in the suburbs and that her spiritual questions and her spiritual challenges really should be at the center of this product, of this thing that they're selling, more yep. than, you know, your pastor. I mean, even if you think about, like, every pastor, I mean, a mid-sized church has a couple hundred people. We're not talking mega, mega churches, but just yeah. in a regular, you know, if you're in Muncie, Indiana, there's 40 churches in 1970, and they all have a few hundred people in them. Maybe one of them is larger, but they all have a hundred to 300, 400 people. That's a lot of book buyers per pastor. Yeah. So when Jeanette Oak publishes this with Bethany, which is out of Minnesota, yeah, it just explodes. And you see within a couple of years, like every publisher has their own, not knockoff, yeah, but whatever. it's like, oh, we just invented a genre, basically. Yeah. We just discovered that the genre existed. Well, tell me about the book itself. Like what jumped out to you when you read it? Yeah. Let me start with the author first. Cool. She's kind of interesting. And if people have read the book, they often still don't know that much about her. She's Canadian, grew up on the Canadian prairie and has an early religious experience with Keswick theology or sometimes called higher life theology. So it's this really this idea of, Jesus saves you for abundant life, right? All of that talk about abundant life, that emphasis on like, if you surrender, it's um, connected to surrender. If you surrender, if you give yourself over, if you submit, though that word is not quite as central as it is triggering to many people today, yeah, yeah. but it is a yeah, surrender, giving yourself over, yeah, that you'll have the best life, the fullest life, that there'll be some sort of um, robust and vividness to your just experience of being alive mm -hmm. through your faith. Faith empowers you 
it sometimes sounds like prosperity gospel, but it actually doesn't have anything to do with wealth or material circumstances. Right. It's, yeah. it's not as she experienced it. It's not about, it's not about the experience of, I don't know, driving a really nice car, having a your personal airplane. It is about the experience of feeling deeply loved by God, by the universe of having this sense that everything the order of creation is for your good and wants your best. Let me I, let me ask you two questions about this about this particular worldview. Yeah. The first one is is it pretty profoundly individualistic in that sense, e- egocentric kind of? Yeah, sure. Okay. It, so so this is where it ends up being not culture worry as we talked about earlier, right? It actually doesn't take your neighbors into consideration really much at all. The idea that, that you flourish, I mean, I guess it could, but in practice, in historical reality, it doesn't tend to involve the flourishing of my neighbors very much. Yeah. And the second one is the way that I delineate between prosperity gospels or not is just whether or not there's kind of a mathematical formula to it. So it may not be that the formula gives you money or material success, but if the formula does give you, let's say, happiness or flourishing or, you know, in any kind of a way, like, do you get out what you put in? Even if it's multiplied, you get out a hundred times more than you put in. But if it's sort of mathematically linked to what you put in or what you do, then that's for me the kind of, that's my personal delineator between a prosperity gospel and something that's more Jesus focused, which issues such, uh, such equations, right? I don't think it's mathematical. It also doesn't do the thing where if tragedy happens to you, this is because you failed in some way. That's, that's the equation thing. Yeah. That's the other line that I, it's like when suffering happens, what's the explanation of that? Mm Mm-hmm. And the Keswick higher life explanation is we don't know, but God intends it for your good and you should trust God through this terrible thing that's happening to you. But there's no denial that it's terrible. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. no statement that like, well, if you'd had enough faith, you're this terrible thing that happened to you. Yeah. So it does seem distinct then. I would I would consider that distinct from prosperity gospel. Yeah. I think it's distinct though. The language sounds similar enough in places yeah. and there's definitely people that have started in one place and ended up in the, in the of other. Course. So yeah, it yeah. gets complicated, but yeah, she grows up in this, in the Western Canadian, she's in Alberta. Another interesting thing is that her conversion experience is at a um, summer camp for kids and the evangelist who runs the, who speaks that she converts at is a woman And the church that she was involved in, this very revivalist church, had this, like, well, only men can be pastors unless there just aren't enough and out on the prairie. So so her experience is also kind of feminine, like her sense of the religion. Like, then her mom converts and her sisters converts, and I, her dad doesn't. So it's actually, like... In her own biographical narrative, I think the first man who's a Christian that even comes up is actually her husband. Yeah. Um, so that ends up creating a kind of interesting 
flavor to just her own life experience. It's a little bit like 70s women's lib light for <laughs> conservative evangelicals. There's a lot of connections there. Doesn't go all the way, but it's well, like, uh, but it doesn't actively resist it in the same way that other sort of Christian approaches took that in more of a culture war kind of a way and said, oh, this is what we have to be opposing. This will ruin families. That's not where Jeanette Oak's coming from. No, she's not really interested in culture war or the, the deeper connection between seventies feminism and evangelical culture is actually with Maribel Morgan, who writes the total woman and then organizes women's conferences around the country where mm. they talk about, how believing in Jesus and following the Bible should give you the best life, specifically the best sex life and wow. the, the best, the best marriage. And they're all given all these women are gathered into church basements where they sit in a circle and talk about their experiences of sex, which is consciousness raising way on a way broader scale than feminism actually oh, accomplished yeah. in the seventies. Wow. They're all, they're all then, given assignments like go home and surprise your husband with sex. Um, there's a lot of talk about costumes and having sex outside of the bedroom, like even outside or under the table. Wow. Um, yeah. And that, that has a bunch of feminist and anti-feminist elements that are deeply intertwined. And that is a wildly successful book in the 1970s, but it's not fiction. So it's something mentioned yeah. briefly. But you're not wrong to see this connection. There is this version of evangelicalism in the 1970s that believes that, like, Betty Friedan is right about the the angst that women feel. That's right about the, you know, the, the sense of meaninglessness that middle-class women feel. They, they think that that is exactly the correct diagnosis. Uh, and then just disagree about where we go for the solution. As opposed to, you know, a James Dobson-y person who's like, the feminists are wrong to feel bad, right? Yes, There's a whole right. group of people who are like, no, 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 the feminists are 100% right in their, but just not in their suggestion, right? In their it's prescriptions, not, yeah. It's not the Equal Rights Amendment that's going to solve this for women. It's um, right. seeing how Jesus wants them to have a great sex life and wants them yeah. to flourish in their house in the suburbs. Um, yeah, it's so interesting. What's the uh, what's the plot of this book? Yeah, so it is on a prairie in the sort of pioneer days, an, an unnamed prairie. Hell yeah. <laughs> and a woman is going west with her husband and he dies. And she is sort of abandoned on the prairie and feels very alone. And then meets a man who has a young child whose wife has died and he proposes a marriage to her, a marriage of convenience yeah, so that they can take care of each other and she will take care of his child. He will provide her with a house. And it's pretty clear from the start that it's supposed to be platonic. Like this isn't, he's not suggesting a physical relationship. Yeah. It's not clear at all why they would need to get married to make this arrangement. Like there's, I, I can imagine there being an argument, but it's just like not even, yeah. it's not like, oh, people would think ill of us if we just like were roommates. Yeah, um, they don't say that, but you could, maybe if it's that long ago, you could extrapolate. You extrapolate from it. Yeah. Yeah. So she 
accepts, she feels compelled to accept, and then falls in love with him as it goes on. There are lots of chores in the book. It's the most chore-centric book. Um, There's lots of like figuring out how to cook dinner and how do you milk a cow? And it's, it's, um, it's interesting how much it cares about those details of life domestic life yeah i mean that there you go that that speaks directly to that sort of whose life and cares are taken most seriously with the publication of this book and it's and it's the female readers and it's it's investing all of those things with like if you're going to feel loved by god and loved by a man and if you're going to feel like your life is abundant then it's also going to involve the chores <laughs> Right? Yeah, it's realistic. You, if your yeah. life is going to flourish, it also has to involve sweeping or laundry. It's it in that sense women writers or writers who take that approach are so much more on the money than male, you know, than like a Tom Clancy type mm-hmm. of an approach, you know, where it's like well, the entire story can just be about like these special ops dudes or whatever, you know, which is like yeah. not going to be my life ever. There's a kind of wisdom in it. There's so many genre conventions where you wonder, like, did they ever eat? Like, where does does Jason Bourne get food? Like, when does that happen? Yeah. Yeah, where this novel goes the other way. Enough that, like, some readers are, like, find it quite boring. Yeah, a little bit of a Moby Dick situation. Like, Why is she sweeping again? What is up with all of these details? (laughs) Yeah, Um, Herman Melville was accused of that, of of too, you know, too too much detail about whaling. Yeah. 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 So then over the course of the novel, um, she falls in love with this man, which means learning to trust him and learning to believe that he wants the best for her Mm -hmm. and that anything that he's doing that she doesn't understand, she can trust that he wants the best for her. Mm. He is also a Christian and is telling her about God in ways that turn out to be both true of him and of God, right? Mm. God wants the best for you. God loves you. And you don't know it and you don't trust God yet, but you could. And that would be um Oh, Daniel. Can I just, so the romance and the and the can I just divine I gotta, romance overlap completely. Oh, I just need to I'm feeling I'm feeling a lot of emotion as you describe that. And I'm actually feeling what I might want to call pity but maybe it's more like empathy or sympathy for like a certain kind of a reader mm-hmm. who's had a, like maybe a rougher life and reads something like this. And, and like, I can see how a story like that would just feel like the grace of God. I mean, just feel like the best to believe that that could happen to me. You know, would be like, I mean, it's like hope crack. I mean, it's like, (laughs) I don't know how to describe it. I know I think crack is maybe a little racialized term. I I just couldn't think of anything else. But like, it's like, oh my God, like that just gets right to the core of just like tens of millions of Americans, you know, identity, especially, you know, especially depending on how rough their childhoods were, what their relationship with their own father has been like, or their own husband for the majority of these readers, if they're married, you know, and like, and at the same time, my, my heart's like, I mean, I do believe that there is a spiritual truth 
behind that longing and and whatever. But I also feel like, oh, they're going to be so let down. <laughs> you, you know, if, if they build, and I'm sure they did some of these, you know, if this subculture builds sort of an identity and gets used to these narratives and then they have to live in the actual world, it's just, I'm just feeling a lot. As I, I don't really mm. know, I, it's not even clear to me what I'm feeling, but I'm just like, I feel like you just plopped me into a world, the world of the 1980s. Uh, mm-hmm. Christian suburban housewife and mother, a, a person I have, you know, yeah, I felt some sympathy for. And then like, oh, so you're painting a really good picture. You're doing a good Great. job. I'm glad you're feeling that. Yeah, that is, that is very much, I think, what's going on with these novels. And then um, kind of the, the next layer of the plot is bad stuff happening. Right. So there's actually, it really is... Um, like a world of tragedy, (laughs) many, many bad things happen to first the main character and then sort of all of the other women in the world. Like as she comes to know all of the neighbors, um, there's almost a sort of episodic, and now what's this neighbor's tragedy going to be? And so it really does try to put that experience of the love of God to the test, right? That you would find a way to trust and to hold on to that hope and to experience that trustworthiness, even in the bad stuff. Happening. Yeah. Yeah. A couple other things people should know before they like are so moved by this, that they go read it. Yeah. Jeanette Oak made up her own accent for the novels. So there is a weird, some people find it kind of unbearable. Um, okay. But yeah, it's a made-up dialect that she, <laughs> all of the dialogue is in this dialect, that it's like TV country or something. I don't know. Wow. Has there been a film? Yeah. So there's a whole series of Lifetime TV shows that are sort of built on this world. It's the wow. Love Comes Softly. Uh, I might need to try. I'm, I think universe. I might get curious enough to check that out. I, I want to move to The Shunning, the Beverly Lewis Amish romance novel, That's just because we were coming up on time here. Are, are we cool to move on? Yeah, that's great. So I think that maybe the, the simplest way to start this is just to say, can you contrast, like, what's different about the Beverly Lewis book and specifically these, I don't know if people have heard about this. I, I watched like a short documentary about him one time about this totally, it's it's quite big, this world of you know, Amish romance novels, like super chaste, you know, kind of thing. And they, it's almost always takes place in Amish country. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's kind of, it's, it's kind of crazy to me that it exists, but I think you're going to explain it pretty well. Yeah. That's the first thing you need to know is that the Amish, they're all written by evangelicals and they're mostly read by evangelicals. The Amish is the, I don't know, the fantasy landscape in the same way that like Regency novels aren't written by people in the Regency, right? The Regency is the the fictional world that people, all these novel, all the, those romance novels exist in, Victoria Holt, et cetera. By the way, real quick, yeah. Love Comes Softly, the main film from 2003, Catherine Heigl yeah, plays the lead. She, she's one of the big stars that has worked in that world. I think she does some of the Lifetime movies, too. I don't write about the movies in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because the market is so different and so complicated. Yeah, I've decided yeah. to leave all that stuff aside. But, yeah, 
that part okay. is huge. Sorry, I, I shouldn't have interrupted you. That's like people okay. are like, man, I really got to know who's the lead in the Love Comes Softly <laughs> film. Sorry about Burning that. Burning anyway. questions. Yeah. yeah, is Catherine Heigl involved? Yes. Hold on. Yeah, so the first thing you should know is it's all Amish characters and Amish settings. And then I feel like the cha- the chaste remark should be addressed too. The prairie fiction, the, the early Christian romance is also all chaste. I mean, there's a implied sex at the end of Love Comes Softly. But it's worth noting that this emerges in contrast to mainstream romance novels, which are getting an, a lot more sexual at the I, same time. In the oh, they're 70s. basically becoming pornography. I mean, it's erotica, essentially, right? You may or may not know, but when popular romance novels first start getting sexualized and sex starts first being introduced, it's specifically through sexual violence. So it becomes really common for the hero in a mainstream romance novel, the male hero, to rape the heroine, sometimes multiple times. And then at the end of the novel, that's the person that she falls in love with. Jeez. So, so I feel like sometimes people are like, oh, this Christian romance, it's so chaste. And it's like, yeah. it's not, it's not, yeah, it is. Yes, it is. But like, let's have a correct understanding of what they're sort of being in contrast to. Yeah, it's yeah. Like not... shit was getting weird in the normal culture around this. It was, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, kind of Fifty Shades of Grey, honestly, like. I haven't read those books. We did. My wife and I watched the first movie, but that's more, version. that's a modern yeah. version of that. Right. It's like, right. okay, there's technically there's, we're going to make sure we build in some technical consent, but she's really uncomfortable with it. You know, it's definitely pushing her boundaries and that's the kind of titillating part about it. I don't know a lot about that world and I'm not trying to judge the BDSM world in general. I'm just saying, you yeah, can, it's obviously, it's a, that is the heir to that original movement in the 70s. It's still around. And I think it's just helpful to say when Christian women wanted romance novels that were chaste, that wasn't just I'm fundamentally uncomfortable with sex. I'm sure yeah. some people felt that way, but that's yeah. not the most basic thing. It's that it's specifically sexual violence and and other types of... I mean, obviously, it's also not, you know, within marriage and these other sort of rules that Christians are holding to, these Christians are holding to. But sometimes the chaste comment is made in a belittling way that I feel like is actually not helpful to understand. Not that you were necessarily saying that. I probably was. And uh, it's my, it's my, you know, liberal elite shithead bias, (laughs) coastal hipster crap coming out. I'm sure that's what it is. And thank you for calling it out. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, Okay, so the big difference is that so most romance novels up until the 80s when Beverly Lewis writes The Shunning, and this is the one that sort of just marks this turn or this new subgenre, most of them had been sort of Old West frontier that, that had been sort of prairie, that had been like the most common setting. And she she just kind of invents wholesale a brand new setting that's really interesting and gives people a lot of stuff to play with and invent. It also adds the question of religious conformity and religious authenticity. Mm. So the big thing that you see is that the in the shunning, the main character feels different. 
And everyone else seems like it's really easy for them to just conform to the rules of their religious community. And for her, it's really hard. And she doesn't know why it's really hard, but it just doesn't work for her. And then there are a couple of other sort of um, almost genetic or inherent differences. Um, she has red hair. No one else does. She doesn't mm. understand. Um, she loves to sing and she sings all the time. And it's forbidden in a bunch of contexts. And she has like a secret guitar that she's forbidden to play. So for her, for, the, for that main character, the discovery of an authentic identity and the discovery of love are the same. And there's a version of love that she's offered that is about conformity and is about if self-effacement identity, just stripping away the identity to just be like everybody else. And there's a version that endorses the desire to be yourself, you know, that authentic imperative of just be yourself. Yeah. Uh, it does seem like kind of like if you had to guess how like standard white evangelicals would think about the Amish as like the, as hyper individualistic kind of, you know, evangelicals have really absorbed the sort of American mythos. You go, oh, yeah, they would think of the Amish as like primarily, you know, just conformers or something like that. And in the longer history of how Americans have interpreted the Amish, there's always two versions. There's the Amish are the good old folk. There's like a folkway Amish. Yeah. That's what I sort of assumed these books were from okay. the outside. So later genre, it flips. Okay, later on that does happen. So she starts out seeing the Amish as this like oppressive conformity yeah. against the authenticity and the self-expression. The authenticity theme stays throughout, but in later, I mean, the genre, the genre explodes so much. There's like a new Amish romance novel every four days. Like these Daniel, how many, how many rates. Amish romance novels have you read for, for research purposes? Of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> I tried I tried to read between like 10 and 30 of each genre. Yeah. And then only write about one. Right. right. I wrote about the big one that sold more than a million copies and that marked some kind of transition in the market. But to understand right. it, you did have to You gotta read more than just the one book. Yeah. There was an early version where I was gonna try and do a chapter per genre. Okay. And then one, I end up in a bunch of arguments with English professors about the definition of genre and decided I didn't care. Oh, no. Yeah. And two, it becomes harder to interpret and say, like, here's what happens, right? You feel like it feels like you're cherry picking when you're pulling from 30 novels, where when you close read one novel, it's a little clearer that, like, no, I know what I'm talking about. And this right. is what it says. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 note that the uh, the, the evangelical use of this of this imaginary Amish community is exactly like the broader American use. This is like the same way that the, during the um, Franklin Roosevelt funded a bunch of artists to go find American forms of life and document them and preserve them. The Amish were totally one of them along with like Appalachian people. Yeah. There's lots of, um, you know, George H.W. Bush had a had a just say no to drugs campaign 
announced it in front of the Amish, right? The Amish were the backdrop of like uh, a bunch of anti-welfare politics has used the Amish as like in the old days, we didn't need it. We all took care of each other. Um, but at the same time, you get lots of narratives of like, um, you know, they're anti-education. There's an angry man who's in charge of everything. People aren't allowed to choose for themselves their own way of life. There's a little, the bit of a bit of a Handmaid's Tale, like Handmaid's Absolutely. Tale is drawing on the Amish to some degree. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So the evangelical fiction goes in both directions, but so does broader American culture and the whole Amish tourist industry is is some part of that. But in this original one, and in both versions, the question of authenticity really arises as this kind of central concern. What does it mean to be yourself? You know, in the later novels, people be themselves by finding their place in a community, by finding their sort of their subculture and their belonging. And in other novels, they find it through independence, through personal faith, you know, through that sort of um, American and evangelical individualism. But in every case, the sort of central, the central question about belief is how how does this imperative that we feel in the world today to be yourself and be just yourself and be authentically yourself and not be someone else, how does that connected to the, the question of what is belief like in, on a Tuesday in suburbia? Yeah. Well, Daniel, I could literally talk to you about this all week. I think it's super interesting. I am personally very excited. Be a very long podcast. <laughs> very long. We could do a Joe Rogan one where we take mushrooms and we just start talking about Christian fiction and go for four hours. Now, um, I uh, I'm excited to read the book. I I as I was telling you off, Mike, I didn't want to sort of didn't want to know too much going in. I kind of wanted to play that game, and and then I I wanted to be a little surprised, and I was very pleasantly surprised. I got a digital copy, you know, from the publisher, but I think I'm going to need to track down a paper so I can like read this on vacation uh, when I have a little break. Um, and I would encourage anybody who found this interesting to check it out. I continue to be impressed with your um, both in talking about this book, but also your reporting. I just love how, I don't know, you have a lot of integrity. You take things, you have an academic kind of a bent to you that I think is very careful uh, in a way that I, I actually really, really admire and think is often missing, especially from, works that take on popular culture. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I'm grateful for your time and for your work, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. I hope, and maybe this can be the final plug for the book. Yeah. I hope that what people take about it is not just my uh, deep dives into this kind of weird cultural phenomenon. The kind of larger, two larger points that I'm trying to make. One is really about the infrastructure. So much of the attention to evangelicalism from journalists and podcasters, but also academics and historians in particular, has really been, what do they believe <laughs> and how do they vote? And I think that's pretty limited. And I think focusing on the imagination can really help us get deeper. And then focusing on the infrastructure and how is this stuff built yeah. that holds the world together. So that's the first thing that I hope that the book contributes to the world the same Brief, thing briefly i want to just say like i've been i've been interviewing people about the parallel institutions of evangelicalism for five mm -hmm. years now 
since I started covering religion and politics with my first podcast. And uh, it is, it explain it has so much explanatory power for, mm-hmm. if you go, what, what did I just grow up in? Parallel institutions is like 60% of the work right there. If you can yeah. get your head around that, you go, oh, that's why my life looked different than my college roommate's life. Mm-hmm. I was, I was able to be in an entirely self-contained world for almost everything in my life other than utilities and purchasing cars and, you know, whatever. My realtor might not have been Christian, but she might have been with a big fish on the back of her car that she got at the Christian bookstore where she bought her kids the Christian albums and, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, like, and listened to the Christian radio on her way back and forth. And our mega church was where all our friends were from and, you know, fill it out however you want. It's, it is a unique thing in American history, and we are the age, we are maybe the first cohort to truly come of age that was like, could really do our whole lives in mm-hmm. that in that parallel world. Mm-hmm. And that is really a question of infrastructure. Yeah. And one way that ends up having some explanatory power, I talk about it as like a conversation. And if you're trying to track a conversation through time, and you just track the topic of conversation. And then you're like, man, they talked about that a lot. And then they stopped and it wasn't part of the conversation anymore. I don't understand. Was it important or not? Versus tracking, what is the structure that means these people keep talking? Mm. What is holding this conversation? Things can come and go out of the conversation. The conversation itself continues. And if you want to understand what the conversation is, Paying attention to the topics will will lead you astray after after a certain point. The second the second thing I hope people get from it is just this is a wildly popular phenomenon, <laughs> and we don't have to approach it so simplistically. We don't have to flatten it all. We can really get a lot out of nuancing and and going deep with with pop culture and with things that people like and with things that we think are stupid and with things that we think are entertaining, but not serious, that if we can kind of take it seriously and be empathetic and allow people, allow the people that we're studying to be as creative and free as we are, and just kind of assume that about them, that that'll actually give us a much more robust and deep understanding of the world that we live in than some of our natural inclinations for how to approach these things. Totally. I love that. Well, I've got a link to the book on Amazon in the show notes. You can also find it at your local bookstore. Our local bookstore, for instance, has a way to buy things online and they'll either ship them to you or you can pick them up. So recommend that if if you have a store that you'd like to support. But Daniel, thank you. I hope that your journalism and authorship career continues to flourish. I I want an abundant publishing career for you is what I want. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate it. In the, in the manner of, uh, in the manner of love comes softly uh, yeah. or, or uh, Jeanette Oaks, whatever that kind of theology was called that you, I couldn't remember the name of it. Uh, thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this episode and you can become a patron patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month and it includes at least two exclusive episodes per month, as well as access to the patron only Facebook group. Again, Daniel, thanks for being here, man. I really, really enjoyed talking. Thanks. It was a blast. 